Amen. And as God provides our needs, um, all that we as God's people have need of, he provides every day. And to learn more of that, and that not only does he provide us grace to be saved, he provides the grace that sustains us in the faith daily. And in addition to that, he provides what we need daily to sustain us in this life. And to see something of that, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles as we continue to worship the the Lord this morning through the exposition of Scripture. We'll look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34 will be our attention this morning. If you're visiting with us today, we're uh, very pleased to have you with us. Um, To our families in the fellowship hall, hello, hello. We are blessed um, to be able to be together um, to once again look into the living word of God, which is active, it's living, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the ministering word of of God the Holy Spirit to our souls this morning. Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This ends the reading of God's word this morning, and let's pray for his blessing and our time as we look at it together. Father, once again, we thank you for your provision The provision that provides us not only sustained eternal life, established in eternity past, made manifest through the cross, yet sustains us each and every day, while at the same time you promise to provide for us that which we need. And Lord, as we confuse oftentimes our wants with our needs, help us this morning by the leading and teaching of your Holy Spirit through the proclamation of your word, um, the order of things as they are to be. For those, Lord, who struggle with anxious hearts filled with anxiety, 
Lord, may your word minister to their souls today. May everyone be edified in the truth. And may those outside of the faith, if there are any who are dependent upon themselves to save themselves, may they see their utter depravity and helplessness and that the only hope is found in your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Here's Jesus, the King of Kings, preaching a message to his kingdom recipients here in the hills of Galilee. The very people that were apprenticed to him then as disciples of the Lord followed him up that day, as we see in chapter 5, verse 1, up on that hill where he sat down to teach. They honed in, and as they were apprenticed to him today to hear a message, we who are apprenticed to him today as his disciples, we, beloved, are recipients of the very same message. In a different time. But nevertheless, we are facing the same challenges, the very same temptations, uh, specifically here at this portion of Scripture, having to do with anxiety and worry out there in this world. And we see here in this glorious sermon that the gospel of Jesus Christ is holistic. In that, beloved, it, it covers every part of who we are in Christ, every area of life. You are that which makes up his kingdom, the kingdom of the king, the master, the Lord, Jesus Christ. He owns everything. One theologian of the past, Abraham Kuyper, he said this, quote, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. And that includes you. If you're in Christ this morning, you belong to him. You are a purchased possession, precious in his sight, paid for with a great price. Now, Jesus, when he came, he inaugurated that kingdom in his death and resurrection. And he, beloved, has overthrown all rivals and all compelling parts that seek to influence and or govern our affections. That kingdom will one day be so amplified in its glory that the very glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, as the scripture says. In one day, the splendor of Jesus Christ in his kingdom glory will shine so brightly that even the sun and all of its radiant parts will no longer be necessary. This is our hope. This is the guaranteed future. And that kingdom, beloved, once again, is not merely some future event. But again, that kingdom has been established when he came. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? If I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom's upon you. The king's arrived. He's making a kingdom people. But even as it's been established and is comprised of those who make up that kingdom uh, who are in the sun, and though it impacts every area of our lives, no doubt, there is not a redeemed saint who, through the finished work, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, that does not cry out, he's my savior, he's my king, I am his, he is mine. Amen? This is our cry. 
Yet oftentimes, we attempt to compartmentalize what he's doing in our lives. As though he controls the spiritual realm of our lives, but we control uh, the more tangible things in life. We all fall into that periodically. And part of the problem is, beloved, that we are members of two kingdoms. As the kingdom children of God, we are part of his kingdom, while at the same time we belong to another kingdom. Kingdom of this present world. That's a visible kingdom. The kingdom that we're part of eternally is invisible. It's not seen with the naked eye. So we live in a tension between two kingdoms, do we not? It was Augustine who referred to these as two cities, the city of God and the city of man. And oftentimes in the midst of that tension, we become accosted or corrupted and even eventually conform to the kingdom or the city of man and that which is going on around us. It's a very easy thing to fall prey to. It's easy to buy into or um, fit into the values of our culture or the status quo. There's a tension here because the kingdom of this world attempts to threaten or impose its values, its philosophy upon God's people who, again, belong to a kingdom that's invisible, and that is eternal. So here Jesus is examining his own. Remember, he's teaching his disciples primarily here. He's examining us. He's challenging us to, to look at what is our perspective as we dwell here in the city of man. He's probing. He's exposing our preoccupations, our passions within this life. And the overarching question for us this morning is this. What value do we assign to the temporal worldly kingdom? And what value do we assign to being part of God's eternal kingdom? Because if you think about it like this, why is a $20 bill worth $20 and a $100 bill worth $100? Is it because the ink and the paper of the $100 bill is worth more than the paper and the ink of the $20 bill? No. The $100 bill is worth more because its value has been assigned to it. So the value of a $100 bill has been assigned to that particular bill. And all of us, you see, assign value to things in our life. Most of which is temporal. Most of, most of which is subject to decay. And Jesus here is teaching us once again, because he is has a people which are a purchased possession. He came to die for these people. He came to die for you, to raise up again, to give you life that is eternal. He, therefore, causes his people to think and to be cautious about what we assign value to. Because whatever we deem valuable, valuable here, beloved, whether we, whatever we treasure, as we looked at last time, Jesus says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Whatever we allow to control our hearts, 
Well, whatever controls our hearts controls our behaviors. Whatever controls our behaviors typically controls our emotions. And the consequences, you see, of misassigned value eventually produce something called anxiety. And Jesus helps us here, and he says, if you want to, val- if you want to battle against anxiety, you must argue your priorities against it. And it will go away. Now, anxiety and worry are fear-based emotions. uh, And they produce a particular frame of mind. That's what they do. And they oftentimes hold God's people captive. Now, we can understand that people who aren't in Christ, it's understandable why they would be anxious about things in this world. Why they would be anxious about wanting to hold on to things in this world and fear losing things in the world because this is the best that they're going to get unless God graciously brings them to faith. But as Paul Tripp has said, quote, many of us Christians live with a huge gap between the theological confidence that we celebrate on Sunday and the street-level fear, worry, and anxiety that accompanies us the rest of the week. Now, if you notice here, the word anxiety is used six times in verses 25 to 34. And the Greek word means to be double-minded. It means to be distracted. It means to be divided between two objects. And it, it conveys the idea of being so mentally uneasy that you cannot do what you need to do because you are so distracted in your thinking. That's the meaning of the word here. Jesus uses the word six times. In other words, beloved, it is that gnawing thought that draws upon your mind and, and pulls the cords of emotion continually. This word is used in uh, Matthew chapter 8. In verse 26, when the disciples are in the boat and uh, the great storm is brewing and Jesus is sound asleep in the back of the boat. And uh, they cry out. They woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Why are you full of anxiety? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. So there's the same word there being used. And he basically is saying this. Have you forgotten who's in the boat with you? That's us, amen? Have you forgotten who possesses you? Have you forgotten who purchased you? Have you forgotten who cares enough about you to die for you? Have you forgotten that he who cares enough to die for you and raise for you will will also sustain you today? Same word is used in Matthew 13. If you remember, Jesus gives the parable of the four soils. The seed is the word of God. The seed's always good. And as it's thrown out in verse 22, he said, As for that which was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world. There it is. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. It grows up, but eventually it's overtaken by the, by the cares of the world. In other words, beloved, what, what he means there is that it refuses to relinquish self and trust, or trust in self, rather, in order to entrust oneself to God. 
Now, it's interesting. Our word for worry comes from an old English word that means to choke, to choke out, to strangle. And most definitions related to worry have to do with future events. Those things that cannot be determined, those things that cannot be controlled, those things that keep us awake at night. And that is not a God-given fear. Now, anxiety, we must distinguish it from healthy fear because healthy fear does come from God and a healthy, true fear is our body's response about that which is actually dangerous. For instance, your toddler runs out into the middle of the street and all of a sudden you're taken by fear. That produces something in you that stirs you up to get you moving. That's a good fear. Or your train stalls on the railroad tracks and a train's a-coming. That's a good fear. Adrenaline rush follows that kind of fear. And it gets you out of the way. But anxiety or worry that Jesus is talking about is your body's reaction to perceived, anticipated, or imagined danger that you can do nothing about. Some describe it as doubt. Others describe it as suspicion or lack of confidence in future outcomes. Or it's a lasting preoccupation with uh, bad events of the the past that you just can't let go of. But typically and most often, it has to do with the future, the unknown. For some of us, as it's been said, today is the tomorrow that we worried about yesterday. And it never goes away. It never ends. And, you know, anxiety can, can produce all kinds of uh, physiological conditions, break out in cold sweats, uh, rapid heartbeat, uh, fatigue, fits of terror, uh, panic attacks, um, insomnia, depression, ulcers. It's the fog that never lifts. That's the anxiety for which Jesus speaks about. And, you know, one, one writer, speaking of fog, makes this statement. Quote, it's been reported that a dense fog, extensive enough to cover seven city blocks, 100 feet deep, is composed of less than one glass of water, divided into 60,000 million droplets. And in the right form, therefore, a few gallons of water can cripple a large city. And in similar way, The substance of worry is nearly always extremely small compared to the size it forms in our minds and the damage it does in our lives. Very interesting. Now, treatments or attempted solutions to anxiety in our day range from everything, you know, to certain types of medication to institutionalization. And Jesus shows us here, beloved, the problems of anxiety along with the antidotes for anxiety. So he points out the problems and then he follows them up with a remedy, which we're going to look at this morning. Now, why does the Lord provide this section of scripture? Is it to declare that uh, he promises his kingdom people, Christians in other words, a trouble-free life? Is that the reason? Anybody? 
Absolutely not. You might wish that, but that's our future hope. (laughs) Amen? In this life, Jesus said, you will have trouble. But we can rest and we, we can rejoice because he has what? He's overcome the world. So notice verse 25 is directly connected to verses 19 to 24, for which we looked at last time, which is a warning, if you recall, against placing our trust and allegiance in material things. Living for and and trusting in things. Ultimately, Jesus said it boils down to serving two masters. And you can't serve two masters. For you will love the one and hate the other. You'll serve one, you'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and things, Jesus said. Possessions. So thus the reason he provides us with, with the word therefore in verse 25. The word therefore, okay, always takes you back. And we see the ramifications of therefore following verse 25. So it's not therefore you will have a trouble-free life, but rather an anxiety-free life that enables us, you, the kingdom children of God, to live a life of freedom for our king. Not materialism that distracts, not a materialism that causes this double-mindedness you know, this two-master mentality. Therefore, because God is your master, Jesus says, I say to you, don't be anxious. Now, through a series of questions, as you'll note, he tells us how we can set our hearts free from anxiety. Notice the four questions. Verse 25, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Okay, here's the king talking to his kingdom people. Second question, verse 26, are you not of more value to God than birds of the air? Question number three, verse 27, which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your life? Question four, verse 28, why are you anxious about clothing? All of which, beloved, is summarized for us in verse 30. Notice. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little what? Faith. Remember, he said that to his beloved disciples on numerous occasions. O you of little faith. And he does this to increase our faith. He's teaching. He's the master teacher. So bear that in mind as we look at Jesus' arguments in verses 25 to 34. He provides these specific arguments for us to use and to wage war against anxiety. So if you want to fight anxiety, you go to this passage and you can wage war against it. Every time you're down to the ground, possessed by anxiety. And when worry is grabbing you and you're absorbed or it's choking you out, Fight back with the prescription, with the remedy, with the antidote provided for you here. Now, first of all, he addresses the issue of our priorities because that's the first battle. He he says you need to fight against this. To fight against anxiety is to uh, address the issue of our priorities. So take a hard, long look at what it is that you're living for. It's basically the summarization of what he's saying here. Look at verse 25. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? It's a rhetorical question, obviously, that encompasses all of life's needs. 
not just wants, but needs. So this question is, is another way of stating what he already said in the last section, verses 19 to 24. Life in his kingdom is much more than what you will eat, what you will drink, and what you will wear. And we asked last week, what is our treasure? It is, is it eternal? You know, do we treasure seeing a brother or sister grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Do we treasure uh, knowing that we are able to, to have access into the throne of God's grace and pray with boldness? Do we treasure the fact that someone has come to faith? We tre- do we treasure the fact that we see God answering our prayers? Do we treasure the fact that in spite of our situation at hand, we know God is faithful? These are eternal truths. Or do we treasure how much money is in our 401k? Do we treasure how much property we own? Do we treasure our work? Do we re- treasure our reputation? I mean, especially in America, in our lives, we have to look and say, you know, what do we strive after? Jesus says life is much more than all of those things in my kingdom. So if our faith, if our security, if our trust and our pleasure is ultimately wrapped up in those things, the things that we can acquire, the things that we can possess, the things that we think we can control or maintain, then you will be anxiety-filled. You will have anxiety. And you should worry. Because if we're caught up with that which is temporal, there, there is a worry that we can lose it. Fair enough? There's always that worry. There's always that potential. So if our cares are caught up there, then we should be filled with anxiety. And the question Jesus says is, what is the locus of your focus? Last time, locus meaning place, Latin for place. What what is the place of your focus? My people, my kingdom people, that's who he's addressing. And if your focus is on earthly treasure, you will ulcerate over those things. They're temporal. So Jesus points out a number of problems for anxiety here that are revealed in this text. And notice that the first problem is this. Anxiety hinders thankfulness and satisfaction in what you already have. That's the first problem with anxiety. When you worry about what you don't have, you can't possibly enjoy what you do have. Fair enough to say? Just think about our own lives. I mean, you can't be thankful. Anxiety smothers, anxiety quenches thankfulness, contentment, and enjoyment. Is not life more than these things Jesus said? Now, I was taken back this week in my mind studying this. When I was in Africa, whenever I was there in May, June, I don't know when it was. I was there for three weeks ministering with other pastors, and we were teaching pastors how to teach others how to study the scriptures. It was a wonderful time. Well, I was invited into a couple homes of a couple pastors there in Africa and a couple different um, nations in Africa. And I, I go into these homes, and there's four cinder block walls, and there's rooms within the walls, and those rooms have no dividing doors. There's just a sheet that divides. That's as much privacy as you get. And the restroom is outside in a shed, literally hole in the ground. Their church, which I preached at, is a uh, tin roof uh, on stilts on posts. And my first reaction when I saw those conditions was to feel sorry for them in living in that condition. How foolish. What folly. What Americanized theology. They were perfectly content with the kingdom perspective 
of living for and living in response to, I should say, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the pastors didn't even have a car. He rents a motorcycle to get from point A to point B. And I felt sorry for him. He should feel sorry for me. So that's the first problem. It hinders thankfulness and satisfaction and contentment in what we have. So Jesus provides an antidote. And the first antidote is simply this, beloved. We must ask ask ourselves the question, what is it that I'm really living for? That's the first question that provides an antidote. What is my faith in? What kind of value do we assign to stuff? Down in Africa, they don't have a lot of stuff to assign value to. I mean, beloved, isn't it interesting that 2,000 years later, here's Jesus on the hills of Galilee, 2,000 years after this time, he knows that we are still occupied with what we eat, with what we drink, and what we wear. And when you watch commercials on television, what are they mostly focused on? What you eat and what you drink and what you wear. Or what you ride in. Jesus says life is more than those things, my kingdom people. See, the advertisements say life is these things, and if you get more of them, you get more of life, right? And then they hold up these signs. I saw an advertisement about a year ago in the middle of Monday Night Football. I don't even know what it was about. Everyone was just holding up a sign that said, I am. I am. I am. I am. No, you're not. There's one I am. Whose I am? Jesus, God. That's right, buddy. So if we put our hope and trust in these things, you'll always worry and you'll always wonder, will I lose them? Will someone steal them? Will I be able to manage them? Can I obtain more of them? If that's how we think, that's what we'll get. That's the warning. This is the antidote. So there's problem number one. There's antidote number one. Here's problem number two. Another problem with worried anxiety is that it makes you forget your worth in the eyes of God. It makes you forget your worth in the eyes of God. Anxiety makes us listen to the lie that God has forgotten you, that you are worthless, and that you're unimportant, So we'll typically shake our fist at God. Jesus is preaching outdoors here, obviously. And no doubt he points to some birds flying around in the presence of their creator, no less. There's Jesus, creator of heaven and earth. And here's these birds flying around that he spoke into existence. And he says, take note of these. And if you're an animal lover, I need you to take note of this. Not all of God's creatures are created equally. Okay? You're not an animal. Oh, we're all animals. No, you're not. Animals are animals. You are creatures created in the image of God. The only creatures created in the image of God are human beings. And then we, in addition to that, are recreated by the Spirit of God in Christ crucified with Christ, raised in Christ, assured the glory of Christ. Do you see the difference? 
Jesus said, if he sustains the lesser creatures, will he not care for you who are created in his image? Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Answer, of course you are. You're not equal to a cat. And the cat's not equal to you, preacher. So Jesus uses a bird to teach us a lesson about faith and trust. I thought about this, and I couldn't come up with anything better than Luther, so I'll quote him. Martin Luther said this in his commentary, the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, there it is. You see, he's making, the birds of, he's making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel, a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of creatures. Their example is an embarrassment to us. Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you're listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if they were saying, I prefer to trust in the Lord. He made heaven and earth. He himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hand, end quote. We have a bird feeder in our backyard. It was my wife and daughter's idea to get this thing. They buy the seed, and then I, my job is to fill it up. <laughs> and it hangs in a tree. And it's actually a pleasure to all of us. When it's empty, no sparrows to be seen in that area. All of a sudden, you fill it up, and I sit in the backyard, and I wait, and I just watch to see how long. It's minutes. One is there. Two is there, three is there, four are there, and then the doves that are there, and they fall because they can't, you know, they're, so they take what's on the ground left over, that the, the, the sparrows, they sift through what they don't like, and they get to what they do like, which I think is the sunflower seeds, and all the rest falls in the ground, and then the doves come and get what's in the sand below. God, in his providence, uses my wife and my daughter to get the seed, and then me to put it in, and then they eat. Um, I watched a hawk eat a pigeon in my front yard <laughs> not too long ago. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> because, number one, I don't like pigeons. And number two, I got to watch the providential hand of God provide for the hawk. <laughs> Providing him dinner. Yes, dinner. That creature, pigeon, was made to be made dinner on a particular date and time for that hawk. That's word. So here's antidote number two. Look at and focus on the power and the providence of God over your life. And that you are of much more value than all other creatures combined. Providence means provision, and God makes provision for those that are his. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. Verse 28, he says, observe how the lilies of the field grow. God provides for his birds. God clothes the wild flowers, and this would have been wild flowers, probably in the valley where he's preaching. Many of them would sprout up in a day and be gone the next. 
And he said, look at the intricacy. Look at the beauty of the petal. Think back, you Jewish people, he says, to Solomon, who reigned for 40 years. The brother was the richest man to ever live. And you know how he adorned himself? You know what kind of duds he wore? doesn't even compare to the intricacy of this flower. They're not spinning. In other words, they're not tripping out in the field. So Jesus uses creatures, animate and inanimate objects, to point out that he cares much more for you created in the image of God, let alone redeemed by God. And why do we have anxiety again? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, let's make this clear. Jesus is not reprimanding nice, fashionable clothes, okay? You know, some people can, some Christians have this false humility that they dress ratty, just maybe to try to look humble. There's no reason to do that. There's no reason to err at that end of the scale, or there's no reason to err at the other end of the scale, you know, to wear a, uh, you know, a $3,000, $4,000 suit, and then my wife to wear a $1,000 hat, right? That we don't need to err on either side. He's not talking about style. Style's cool. Style's fine. But that's, that's not what he's pointing out here. You got to remember, in this day, most people only had a couple pairs of clothes. Therefore, it was a need. And he says, you don't have to be concerned. You don't have to have anxiety about these things. Your Father in heaven clothes the flowers of the field. He'll clothe you. It's trust. So this antidote is to grow in and understand the power of God in providing for us. And he uses birds as an example. He uses wild flowers as an example. So open your heart, he says, and watch and wait and trust in the providence of God over your life. He says, actually, argue. Argue the providence of God towards his creation against your anxiety. Okay? So take the fact and argue it every time anxiety rises up. And you'll sleep well. Look, he says, you're the children of the living God. Don't think he doesn't care. Don't be lied to to think that he has forgotten you because he knows you intimately. Now, another problem and argument here against anxiety is that, bottom line, it's an absolute complete, complete waste of energy. Okay? It doesn't solve anything whatsoever. Verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? I know another translation says, or stature. In other words, worrying will not grow you an inch. Being filled with anxiety will not add one split second to your life because God has determined an eternity past the day you will take your last breath. Right? And it's over. And worrying and being full of anxiety will not add to that predetermined time frame. He says you can go ahead and worry, but what will it get you? 
It gets us nothing. It may provide an ulcer or two, that's for sure. A headache, loss of sleep, deep depression, you'll get that, but it won't change the situation. So, in other words, this is a common sense argument here at this point. So he gives another argument against worry and anxiety, that we're to remind ourselves that when we give in to worry, he said, you're given into pagan thinking. Notice. He says, for the Gentiles, they eagerly seek after these things. And he tells his disciples, those that are apprenticed to him by faith, don't fall into the trap of thinking like an unbeliever. Don't go there. Gentiles, he says, unbelievers are naturally consumed with these things, but you shouldn't be that way. If that's all there is to worry about, then it's a considerable worry. Worry on. But they're apart from God. You're not. So, trip not. Your life is hidden in Christ. That's the promise. Notice again in verse 32, he provides us with another argument to use against anxiety here. And that is known as paternal providence. Okay, providence is one thing. Paternal providence takes it deeper. He says, your heavenly what? Your heavenly father knows the things that you need. Better than we know what we need, beloved. Now, we know what we want, amen? Oh, we know what we want. You know, we grew up. We grew up and were taught as little kids, not all of us, that around December 25th time, you write out a list and you send it to some dude in a red suit that lives up in the North Pole somewhere. Right? What I want, what I want, what I want, what I want. And all that produces is some, eventually it produces some weird, deep-rooted love for worry. And we actually entertain it. It becomes our mental and and emotional condition. And worry becomes a companion. Anxiety becomes a companion. He says, no, rid yourself of it. I'm trying to show you the way out. Because I own you. Don't think like this. Don't think like a pagan. Let me ask you a question. Who by worrying can cause their past to go away? Who by worrying can worry into existence what might happen tomorrow? Who by worrying can can worry away what might happen tomorrow? Who can worry enough to know what will happen tomorrow? Nobody, nothing. Here's one. Who can worry someone into being saved? Someone we love who's lost. You're not going to worry them into the kingdom. We pray God will transfer them into the kingdom as he sees fit. So he basically says worry is wasteful. It's a waste of time. But even so, some people, they never give up. And we will not prevail against it until we trust in God's paternal providence that he's father. Okay, that he's my father. He's my heavenly father. He's not the heavenly father of the lost. He's their father in creation but not in salvation. He's your father in salvation. Now, the implication here is is important. The implication is that incessant anxiety, incessant, never-ending worry is not merely always the result of a fragile heart or a weak faith, okay? 
It can be that, but it's not always that. And I think oftentimes it's misdiagnosed as that. Many times what it is, it may be the evidence of arrogance and pride in the believer. That is, that it may be an exaggerated view of our own ability or an unyielding pursuit to overcome uh, what we prefer in comparison to what God doesn't want us to have or to be at this time. So we're waging war against him, and it's arrogance. Could be. So antidote number three is this. Discover and embrace your complete dependence as a creature to your creator. Discover and embrace your complete dependence as a creature to your creator, and that's what you are. You're a creature. You're his creature, made in his image. He's our creator. We're dependent upon him, and I must remind myself I'm dependent upon him. So use that as an argument against worry, beloved, when we're tempted to fret or to anxiously worry. Your father who's in heaven knows what you need, so you and I are subject. We're limited to him, to his will. So when we realize what our Heavenly Father knows, when we realize and entrust ourselves that he will provide exactly what we need, you know what it provides, beloved, for us? Rest. Rest. Okay, it's it's, uh, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about what? Anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then you know the rest of the passage peace of God, which passes all understanding, guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. No, there's, notice there's three main points in that verse. Stop being anxious. Start praying. And number three, always give thanks. Stop your anxiety. Stop your ceasing to worry. Start praying, or cease to worry. Start praying and always give thanks. He knows exactly what you need. The fourth problem with anxiety is that it causes us to forget the very promises of God. It causes us to forget the promises of God. Now, this is implied when Jesus says, Oh, you of little little faith. Verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? Remember, beloved, he took care of our greatest need where? At Calvary. At Calvary. I watched something on TBN yesterday. I'm not a fan of TBN, but I happened to catch this. They were uh, doing a tribute to Billy Graham and his 93rd birthday. And I was thinking about Billy Graham. I love Billy Graham. I don't, uh, you know, some of his theology I don't quite agree with. But here's my brother in Christ. Here's a brother who preached Calvary for, what, 60 years, 70 years? I don't know. He's 93. He's been preaching Calvary a long, long time. And the point is that Jesus took care of our greatest greatest need there, bringing us to Christ. And therefore, he will provide us everything else that he deems important. He'll provide. And then he teaches us in verse 33, notice. This is to make sure what our prime ambition is. 
This is our chief end. This is the most important desire right here, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That is, beloved, that we assign value to his kingdom for which we belong that is worthy of the cost. Assign value to the kingdom for which we belong that is worthy of the cost, and it cost Christ everything to make you part of the kingdom. That's a royal value. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. On Thursday night, um, the men in our study, we spent two hours, and this is the springboard of our focus. Okay, this is you. This is you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become what? Rich. Rich in Christ. So that is that we assign value to his kingdom. That is of eternal value, beloved. Antidote number four. If you, remove, if you want to remove all other anxieties, focus on having one anxiety. One concern, we should call it. And that is seeking the God, God and his kingdom first, God's righteousness and his kingdom first. All other anxieties will wash away. They'll go away. And notice the order. We're to seek not just God's kingdom, not just God's righteousness, but we're to seek it what? First. Seek first his righteousness, his kingdom. Now, there's a lot of legitimate um, desires in life. Amen. I mean, is, uh, you know, pursuing a career, is that a good thing? That's a good thing. Being disciplined, that's a good thing. It's a legitimate desire. Investments, legitimate desire. Taking care of our property, legitimate desire. But it can't be the first desire. Then we're serving another master. Amen? We have freedom to pursue these things. Jesus is saying, when you're dealing with worry, stop and ask yourself, what am I seeking in life? What is the most important thing in my life? Am I seeking the kingdom of God, his righteousness? Do I desire to see the holiness of God implanted in my life by grace? For his glory. And if I'm continually fixed upon anxiety, my heart will not be on that. It will be on things that are temporal and perish. So if we affix our minds and hearts on his kingdom and his righteousness, guess what? No one can take it away. It never goes away. It'll never pass. It's eternal. But down here, everything passes. Everything's temporal. The greatest heavyweight of the world in the 1970s died this week. One of my heroes as a kid, smoking Joe Frazier. I hope he was saved. But if he wasn't, it's over. He's just a dead guy. It's just a dead guy. So why is the, is the very kingdom children of God, do we want to be filled with anxiety because we're so focused on things that perish? So here he provides these antidotes. See, this is, this is encouragement for you, beloved. Those of you engaged um, in raising young children, Right? This stuff isn't going to perish. You are, you, you are placing into your children, you're feeding into your children the very truths of God. Amen? This is eternal value. 
So as stressful as that time can be, as challenging as this time can be, this is encouragement. Those of you who want to be married and there's no prospect in view. We can trust God today for his grace. Amen? You raising kids, he trusts you with the grace you need today, not tomorrow. Those who endure pain and suffering physically, be encouraged. He provides you grace you need today. He will not provide you the grace you need for tomorrow today. So I don't need to worry about that tomorrow. By faith, I can be reminded of these very things. You might be torn by a wayward child. There's concern there. We pray there. We hope. But God will provide you only the grace you need for today in these matters. So may we entrust ourselves to him. We need to remind one another of these things. You know, R.C. Sproul was talking to somebody once, a fellow brother in Christ, and R.C. Sproul um, brought up a matter of concern in his life, and the man said to him, he said, R.C., you're the one that has taught me about the sovereignty of God and providence of God in all things my entire Christian life. He goes, yeah, it's the providence and sovereignty of God. That's what I'm worried about. And it had something to do with someone in his family who has some disease, I think. And he was making a point. I know God is in absolute sovereign control, and I know that I really have nothing to do with it. We must remind ourselves of this. We must remind one another of these things. Your heavenly Father knows. Your heavenly Father sees. Your heavenly Father understands, beloved. And no one understands more where you're at and what you're going through than Jesus himself, okay? Think about this. Jesus Christ stands at the door of the church. He stands there with nail-pierced feet. He opens his hands where they had driven nails, scars, His body scarred for eternity. The only scars in heaven will be on Jesus. And he holds out his hands and he says this, I know the pressure you're under, beloved. Trust me, I know. I know what you're going through. I truly understand the strain. I know something of unfair abuse. Are you being unfairly treated? No one knows better than he. So let me offer you some encouragement. He says, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't be afraid. Look at life through my eyes. I'm the doorway of eternity. I am the hope. I paved the way. I provided for you. I wrote your book, your name, and my book before the foundation of the earth. And in the process, here's problems. Don't fall prey to the problems. Here's the antidote to the problem. Live by faith. I'll provide. I established my kingdom when I came. You're part of the kingdom. When I come again, it will be complete, and you will then participate in never-ending joy. That's our hope. And I close with this. The words of Jesus to his disciples on the night before he was arrested to be crucified. He promised the Holy Spirit, which you have. And he said this. He'll teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And he said this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be what? Afraid. 
afraid. So you see, beloved, value of the kingdom and value of this earth can only be registered in our mind by the amount of value we place on those things. Amen? You are an eternal possession purchased in Christ. If you're not this morning in Christ, your only hope is that which is perishable. Jesus said, if you'll believe in me and trust yourself to me, you must repent of your unbelief. You must repent of your rebellion. Believe in me. Confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that, Christ, that God raised him from the dead. And the scripture says you shall be saved. But you must come to him by faith. And you must come alone by faith. Amen? Father, we do thank you for your eternally redemptive love. We thank you that you came to us, you called us, you purchased us, and then you cause us to think and to recall and to remember um, that things on this earth are so very temporal. And yet, Lord, every single one of us in this room, every single one of us in this building um, is regularly guilty of fretting over and being anxiously filled with fright and fear for which we have absolutely no control over. So we ask that you will help us, that you will increase within us faith and trust in you to sustain us, to provide us all that we need, and to agree with you that which we need and not what we want. Help us to wait, help us to trust, and uh, fill us, Lord, uh, with the faith we need um, on this day, days to follow, months to follow, years to follow, as long as you may tarry till we await your glorious return. And we wait with an anticipation for that day. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.